Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It's clear that uh, we're at the, the edge of disaster and we, we have to really move fast now. The folks that are listening to this radio program, they should know that they too have a role to play in solving our climate change crisis. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jeffrey Schaub. We're coming to you from the campus of the University of California, Davis. And my guests today are Louis Fulton. He's director of the STEPS program, which stands for Sustainable Transportation Energy Pathways Program. We'll talk more about that in a couple of minutes. He's worked internationally in the field of transport, energy, and environment analysis and policy development for over 20 years. And Rebecca Hernandez is assistant professor at the Department of Land, Air, and Water Resources here at UC Davis. She is co-director of the Wild Energy Initiative, and her research is focused on arid land ecology and sustainability and, of course, water resources, too. And thank you both for being with us on In-Depth today. Lewis, I'd like to ask you first, well, I want to ask you both about this. So the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just came out with a report, as you know, the other day, and they said, we have 12 years to prevent global catastrophe. Urgent and unprecedented changes are needed. Your reaction to that? Well, uh, I mean, yes, the report is certainly dramatic, and it adds uh, new information to how urgent the entire uh, climate situation is, you know, and it comes, you know, at the same time we've had uh, another major hurricane in the United States doing extensive damage, and so we and we've had the wildfires in California this summer. It's it's clear that uh, we're at the the edge of of disaster, and we we have to really move fast now. I mean, the UN has the IPCC has been saying things like this for a while. The the science is pretty clear. Uh, the planet is warming, but. Now they're finding that even at lower uh, changes of average temperature, uh, we can see really dramatic effects happening, and it's going to happen sooner than we thought. So yeah, by 2030, we have to be, as a planet, uh, in, a, in a, a realm of much lower CO2 or dropping dramatically dropping CO2. And in order to do that, we have to start really cutting CO2 across all different sectors, including my sector, which is transportation, and that means a rapid shift to vehicles that emit very low CO2, and, and we can talk about that. Rebecca, your thoughts on this report? Well, you know, since 1980, about the time when James Hansen sounded the alarm to U.S. Congress about the threats of climate change, we've been really on a very bumpy, slow-moving, and potholed transition from a carbon-intensive energy portfolio to one that's just marginally less carbon-intensive. There's several reasons for this. Um, one is a persistent subsidization of fo the fossil fuel industry. We know that in 2015, we had about $5 trillion in, in subsidies. It's also owing to a recent rise in, in fracking. And lastly, um, 
this is also a result of just impacts on the environment being, and this is something that I teach in, in my classes here at UC Davis, that it's incredibly easy to, to dump waste associated with energy activities onto the land, into the ocean, or release it into the air. It's also incredibly easy to, to bulldoze natural areas for our, our power plant infrastructure. And I'm, I'm really optimistic about, um, about this, this, what could be called a disruption point in, in Earth's geologic history, what might be a climate cliff. I'll bet that just about everything in this room is petroleum-based or has a petroleum-based product in it. Really, can we turn that around? How are we going to transition to a completely clean energy uh, society? And I don't mean just vehicles on the road. The solutions are many, and, and the challenge is complex. And I think that a lot of the listeners who may be tuning in right now can feel a little bit overwhelmed and maybe that the decisions that they're making may not have a impact on what's really happening. And I can empathize with that as a scientist. We really do need to reduce subsidies to fossil fuels. We also know that policies drive renewable energy diffusion into the marketplace. And cost is a huge barrier to renewable energy penetration. Um, there are several policy-based uh, tools that we can use. Um, but what's, what's, what I'd like the listeners to know is that every decision that they make to, to make their house more green or to reduce their intake of meat or um, to, to ride their bike instead of driving, all of that really adds up at the global scale. And what, what you're doing right now really is making a difference. And we're looking for um, climate change heroes in, in every community across diverse groups. We need climate change heroes in our government, in our churches, in our firms and businesses, and, and in, in the communities that we exist in. So, Lewis, as a director of the STEPS program, you're kind of at the nexus of transport and the environment. You know, what's your perspective on all this? And really, are we talking about changing the way we transport? Okay. Well, just to riff a little bit off of uh, what Rebecca was saying, I think there is a personal part to this and there's a societal and policy part to this. And I think the, the biggest impact that we can have on our own CO2 emissions is a couple of areas, but certainly one of them is the vehicle we drive. And I think there's a tendency to think that to drive a low CO2 vehicle means to have to drive a small car. And that's not true. It's increasingly not true. There are larger vehicles that are very efficient. There are hybrids out there that are very efficient. And the more efficient the vehicle, the less CO2 it emits, at least per per mile of driving. But now we're beginning to really get into a, a realm where we have a lot of choices on plug-in uh, hybrid and electric vehicles available. That's a, a lot of what uh, our group works on, trying to understand uh, what's available and what kinds of impacts these vehicles could have. The costs are coming down, the costs of batteries are coming down. And so we're fortunate that we're at the sort of the beginning 
of a, of a new world where we can be driving vehicles that we run on electricity. California has very clean electricity, very low carbon electricity, and I think we're going to see uh, electricity grids decarbonizing around the world in the next decade, so it fits very nicely with shifting to electrified vehicles. So I think everyone should be thinking about that when they're shopping. You know, there's on the freight side, I mean, businesses need, can do the same thing on the trucking side. Uh, there's lots of opportunities there. But ultimately, I think we need to focus on the policies that, you know, electing people, electing policymakers, legislators, uh, other officials who really take this seriously and get policies in place that strongly promote, that reduce the, the uh, subsidies on fossil fuels for sure and promote the more sustainable options that make them more available to us, make them cheaper, uh, and in some cases regulate. California is going to require that 15% of vehicles sold by 2025 are plug-in vehicles. And I think that's really pushing the manufacturers in a really useful way. So I think that's a, a key part of the whole thing. But the UN report says that by 2030, we're going to be in really bad shape. So we can say we want 15% of the vehicles in California to be uh, battery or or zero emission or what have you. It seems to me that may not be enough. Well, that's right. I mean, at this point, I think that's one of the things the new UN report is telling us, that that's not fast enough. But it's certainly moving up a curve that we need to move up. And if you kind of think about an S-curve type of market penetration profile, uh, it's not too bad. I mean, there's a chance that by if, if we can hit 15% by 2025, then by 2030, we can be at over 50% sales of plug-in vehicles. And by 2035, we could be all the way there. That's a very ambitious kind of uh, picture, but I think we can do it. And of course, California is kind of at the front edge of this thing. And I think it's very important that California leads on this, but we have to hope that the U.S. follows and that other countries follow. We're also seeing European countries moving very quickly. In fact, the country moving the fastest at this point is Norway. They are already close to 50% market share of plug-in electric vehicles. Okay, our discussion today here on In-Depth, can we save our planet and how? And my guests are both environmental experts, two people who know a lot about this. Professor Lewis Fulton of UC Davis is co-director, or director rather, of STEPS, which stands for Sustainable Transportation Energy Pathways, and UC Davis Assistant Professor Rebecca Hernandez, who is with the UC Davis Department of Land, Air, and Water Resources. And I should say we are coming to you from the camp of UC Davis. Rebecca, tell me a little bit about what your focus is here and why the research you're doing is important. In in the early part of 2018, a consulting firm called Accenture developed a disruptability index for 3,600 of the most significant global companies, and it showed that 63% of these massive companies significant companies currently face high levels of disruption. But what was really important about this study was in its comparative um, analyses. The study highlighted that that no industry is more susceptible to future disruption than the energy sector globally. And, And third among those was the utility sector. And so the Wild Energy Initiative is is a new initiative here on campus at UC Davis. And and the purpose of this initiative is to facilitate impartial research and education that focuses on the interactions between energy development and Earth 
including its systems and species, to address this exigent sustainability challenge. How are we going to roll out this much renewable energy while maintaining our goals for conservation and and making sure we can um, maintain our, our food supply? And we use the term wild because uh, wild energy is disruptive energy. Uh, wild energy represents a turbulent agitation in the energy system. Wild energy provokes us to consider energy options perhaps beyond conventional boundaries and norms. And we need some wilding to get us outside of this, what is our now normal and dangerous reliance on on fossil fuels. Um, James Temple of MIT, he described this disruption as an overhaul of the US economy into a war economy without being at war. Um, And so wild, but you know, this is is negative and, you know, kind of scary, but wild is also a word that we associate with a sense of awe and and faultlessness and even purity. It's an adjective that we that we often use to ascribe to nature. And and wild it has some undertones of optimism. And and we are optimistic. The U.S. Energy Information uh, Administration reported that by 2040. Uh, wind and solar will will become the predominant sources of electricity generation, even surpassing hydroelectric power. Um, and and part of the science that that we're doing here at the Wild Energy Initiative is asking how can we develop renewable energy in a manner that is at the very least compatible um, with nature, but moreover, how can we help save nature for future generations and or help nature recover by using uh, energy to do that. Um, our motto is where energy, life, and the environment work together. Okay, I'm going to ask you this question also, but Lewis, I'm going to play devil's advocate, okay? There are a number of people in Washington and in government. I don't know if I could call them global climate change deniers anymore, but they are questioning whether global climate change is uh, human-caused? Uh, is it a mix of s- something else? Or, you know, are we going to come back around? The earth is changing, but, you know, 10 or 15 years, we'll be back to normal. What's your response to that? Well, I think that that's just living in some kind of fantasy world. Um, I, I, you go back to the IPCC report. This is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that's written by the world's top climate scientists who've been studying this problem steadily for the last 30 years. This report adds four more years uh, since the last IPCC major report of of data. Things are actually getting worse faster than we thought. Uh, There's there's clear, we're up to one degree of warming and and it's actually, you know, the rate of warming is increasing. Uh, You know, if you look at the evidence-based world out there, if you look at reports like this, you only have to read about four paragraphs in and you realize, you know, it's real, it's anthropogenic, meaning human-caused, and it's up to humans to solve it. And anybody who says anything else is is in some kind of a denial situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rebecca, the president this past week, I'm going to paraphrase this as best I can, I think said something like, there's something going on there with the planet. I don't know if it's all human-caused. I don't know what it is, but we're not going to spend trillions of dollars to do something about this. So, if the president and some members of Congress suggest they're not willing to spend the money to combat and be proactive about climate change in this country, how can we do any of the things that you're talking about doing? Well, that's a great question. And it's something that 
can cause some anxiety, even among among scientists, if we don't have the political machinery to to back the types of programs and and policies and incentives that we need to roll out renewable energy, how will we achieve our goals? Um, and I think that this is an opportunity uh, again for maybe areas within the U.S. economy um, to to step in and and play a role. And by that I mean there are a lot of companies out there that can utilize their their capacity and their resources to to make that investment. Um, one of the projects that we have here uh, going on here at UC Davis within the Wild Energy Initiative is we are asking why are we not using more buildings to site solar energy? Large commercial buildings have been increasing in size and number throughout the United States. Currently, there are over 5 million large commercial buildings that comprise 8,000 uh, kilometers squared of, of rooftop, rooftop space in the U.S. alone. LCBs, these large commercial buildings, also have significant demand locally um, for produced energy. They can make a huge impact on reducing local-based air pollution. And, and they've been growing steadily for decades. And so one of the projects that we're, we're doing is we're putting a spotlight on these, on these buildings. And Esther Robles-Wentz, who's, who's our, um, one of our scientists in our, in our lab, she's accounting for real-world factors like building and fire code requirements and actually modeling and designing um, solar energy uh, infrastructure on top of the largest 30 uh, buildings in the United States that we've that we've identified and such planning software access and expertise would cost private companies thousands of dollars in upfront costs and these this this is part of what we call soft costs and these can be a huge barrier to installing solar energy but you know we'll, we're excited about releasing these results and, and making them publicly available, not only for for folks to use, but also for, for companies to utilize. And really, we're trying to put a spotlight on the role that corporations um, can play in achieving our, our climate change goals over the short term. Lewis Fulton, along the lines of, you know, what do we need to do to change habits, to um, change the way we do things? I'm interested to hear what you have to say about what we can do in our daily lives. I'll just give you this one example. Several months ago, I did a story uh, at a school district in Contra Costa County where uh, the air district and the school district combined to encourage people not to idle their automobiles when parents are waiting to pick up their kids or, you know, any given number of situations. And we know we see people sitting in parking lots with the engine going while they're playing with their phones, right? I mean, can we really make a difference? And if so, in what ways? Well, I mean, I think we can all try uh, to figure out ways that we can drive less. Uh, it's I realize it's not easy. We live in a very car-dependent um, world here in California, and uh, I would love to see us investing a lot more in transit options so that we can take transit. Yeah, idling, uh, that, that ought to be a no-brainer for people, I think. I don't, I don't know why anybody does that, but, it, you know, it would be great to turn off your engine. But there are technology solutions there as well. If we, if we go for hybrid vehicles, go for some of the more efficient, efficient vehicles or electric vehicles, then there will be no more idling. It goes idle off. 
so, you know, there's a combination of behavioral and, and technical kinds of solutions here. But I think a lot of it is going to have to be technology on the transportation side and, and policy. And I'll mention two things that I think uh, they're pretty relevant. They're a little political right now. But we have on the ballot for November a refer- referendum to basically repeal the 12-cent gasoline tax. And that tax is, is paying for not only important infrastructure, but also for research for solutions on, uh, the, you know, what can we do to, to cut CO2 emissions. I would love to see some of that money going to, uh, some of it does, but I'd like to see more of it going to transit-oriented solutions. But we need more investment in these things, and taking away that 12 cents is definitely going in the wrong direction. The other thing is that California is holding the line on a a, a good, strong corporate average fuel economy standard uh, going out to 2025, making cars more efficient, and the the federal administration is trying to neutralize that and, and, you know, basically stop it at the 2021 levels. And I think that's another huge mistake. It's a, it's a great opportunity for low-cost CO2 reduction, and we just have to see it through and at least do the things that, that are, you know, sort of already in play and not take them away. We're at UC Davis. You're listening to In-Depth. I'm Jeffrey Schaub, and our guest today, Professor Lewis Fulton. He is a director of STEPS, which stands for Sustainable Transportation Energy Pathways, and UC Davis Assistant Professor Rebecca Hernandez, who is with the UC Davis Department of Land, Air, and Water Resources. Rebecca, what worries you when we think about the future? Well, I try I try not to worry. Worry is an activity that's doesn't really produce a lot of results. Um, and but I, I I am concerned about um, the future and really the state of the earth for our future generations. I worry about whether or not our children will have natural areas to to recreate in, to find cultural meaning in, to find spiritual meaning um, and grounding in. I worry about education. I worry about access to education, um, particularly here in the U.S., where a lot of students are, are saddled with um, student loans. Um, I worry about climate change um, and and its impacts um, on the environment. And I think that these this is a, a challenging time. But again, I think that um, I'm I'm really optimistic about the ways that we, uh, as a society, can and as a global community, can pull together and and find the technologies and apply them in a way that we've never done before. Ways that can be compatible with nature, ways that can improve nature. And there are a lot of changes that we're going to see. I'm actually excited to be here at this point in time in history. Mm -hmm. And I think that we all have a role to play. And the, the folks that are listening to this radio program, they should know that they too have a role to play in, in solving our climate change crisis. Lewis, uh, you know, we just uh, had this big hurricane in Florida, Hurricane Michael, on top of all the other hurricanes that we've had. What are your concerns looking down the road? Sure. Well, I think actually my biggest fear here is that you know, we hear it's more urgent than ever. Things are, are, are getting worse faster than we thought. And I think there's a risk that we're going to go from complacency to a feeling of like, well, all is lost. There's no point 
you know, and trying to, to fix it anymore. And I think that's a big mistake. I think we can, we still have a window here to, to move fairly quickly and all of us, you know, individually and together can, can make the changes we need to make. They're not that hard. Uh, and, and get us going in a much better direction and avoid some of the worst uh, aspects of climate change. It's not a one-zero situation. It's a continuum, and we can prevent some very, very bad outcomes if we start to take action now. And I think we should treat the next 12 years as the critical time when we all uh, really need to, to educate ourselves and, and make the changes in our lifestyles and and also in terms of our voting and, and what you know who we elect and get people in in office who are really focused on trying to solve this. We're looking 20, 25 years down the road. What kind of a planet do you want to see and what's realistic? Okay, so 20, 20, uh, 20 or 25 years down the road, like 2040 or let's say going out to 2050, I think we can have an, an almost completely fossil-free transportation system worldwide. I think we can be well on the way to having kicked out oil. I mean, there still will be a lot of oil, in, in especially in, in certain countries, uh, and for some of the heavier modes, certainly for trucks and, and aircraft. But we can be well on the way to phasing that out so that not too long after we are into uh, a combination of zero emission uh, electricity, hydrogen, and maybe some biofuels to run the, the global transportation system on and can be very proud that we are no longer emitting CO2 and other uh, greenhouse gases, although CO2 is the main one, also methane, um, and and you know, a, a, along with other things that some of the things Rebecca's talking about, we can create an overall picture where we are decarbonizing and we are taking, you know, our foot off the gas here and and basically be fixing this problem so that, let's say, by 2100, we are back to some kind of even keel. As the planet continues to warm, I know this will have an impact on agriculture and how we grow our <coughs> crops. And are we going to have to reorient the way we we practice these things looking down the road? In terms of agriculture, um, I'm I'm not a farmer and I'm I'm not an agricultural uh, scientist, but I, I I do have colleagues that work in that space, and um, one of the exciting things is that this is already happening. We're already shifting the ways that we that we do agriculture and that we create agricultural commodities for that serve society. Mm. Um, one of the hardest hit places is in, in sub-Saharan Africa and, and, and particularly in the Sahel. Um, and there, the, the, the farmers are already adapting to, to climate change um, in their agricultural practices. Um, originally, they were they were told by um, some um, good-minded people that they should remove all of their native vegetation across their landscape and plant huge monocultures of of crops that we grow here in the U.S. and and now they they're teaching us because um, the farmers there they form cooperative um, farming. Uh, units and and they're outplanting native plants that's those are plants that are indigenous to to the area and what they're finding is that um, these indigenous plants can actually um, help facilitate and increase crop yield um, providing greater resilience to to climate change and this is a technology this is this is something that they're doing now and and so 
um, there's there's lots of really creative, exciting um, applications, and that's just one. Um, but but we, we are adapting, and we are we are seeing um, some really neat opportunities for nature and food um, to work synergistically together, in spite of these grand challenges. Well, I think we could go on for another couple of hours. I'm sure you could agree, but uh, that winds up this uh, week's edition of uh, KCBS In-Depth. Our guests have been Lewis Fulton. He's director of the uh, STEPS program here at UC Davis, which stands for Sustainable Transportation Energy Pathways, and UC Davis assistant professor Rebecca Hernandez, who is with the UC Davis Department of Land, Air, and Water Resources. Thanks, both of you, for, for joining us today. I'm Jeffrey Schaub. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 